Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you and enjoy. Our topic this morning is living in the kingdom. I call this a discipleship series rooted in Christ. Uh, There's a little symbol on the discussion guide you're going to receive at the end of the talk. And the symbol is a stem with a branch growing out of it. And all of us know that that one verse in Scripture, that I am the vine and you are the branches, and apart from me you can do nothing. Uh, And Jesus said those words to us in the upper room the night before he died. And yet we try to do everything oftentimes apart from Jesus Christ. So in the discipleship series, we want to talk about what does it mean to be a disciple? Because the Great Commission, as we call it, the disciples at the Ascension were told by Jesus before he ascended, go and make disciples of all the nations. He didn't say, go make us faithful Catholics. He didn't you know, go tell us, make us faithful churchgoers. He didn't say, make us good people. He said to make us disciples. So what does that mean, and, and how, does, how does this interact with us or come to play in your life and my life? You know, if you read the Scriptures, you're going to find there's two kingdoms that are talked about in Scripture. One is the future kingdom, the kingdom when Christ is going to come again in glory with all the angels and the saints in the heavenly kingdom with him. That is, he comes to us at this this kingdom that is to come. He's going to come in all his glory and the earth is going to be redeemed. Earth is going to be restored to his former glory. And those who are standing in righteousness will live forever with him. But there's another kingdom that is spoken about in in Scripture. And it's the kingdom that Jesus announced when he first came out of the desert. We just celebrated the Sunday past, the baptism of the Lord. And if you remember the Scriptures, as soon as he was baptized, the Spirit came upon him. But the next verse in Scripture said the Spirit drove him into the desert. So the Spirit takes Jesus and motivates him to go into the desert where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he comes out of the desert after that period of fasting and temptation, he says one simple phrase, and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What is Jesus talking about when he said the kingdom of God is at hand? What is he saying to us and what is he saying about the world in which we live? He's literally was saying that the kingdom of God is now going to be established on an earth that has been ruled by Satan for from centuries after centuries after centuries that the world is in the hand of Satan, but yet within this world that is in the hand of Satan, that the kingdom of God exists, where believers' hearts burn with zeal for their Father's house, where they feel the presence of God, they hear His voice, they respond to His voice, where they understand the, the words of Paul when he said, neither power nor principalities nor height nor depth nor future things or present things will keep us from the love of God that they feel that presence of God and the love of God each and every day of their lives. And they also understand that they have the ability to tap into the power of God and to do the things that Jesus said again in the upper room when he said, you will do the things that I do and far greater than these because I'm going to the Father. And he says that because he said the Father is going to send you the Spirit. So Jesus was telling you and he was telling me that we are going to do what he did and far greater and in the kingdom of God, we begin to understand that we do have access to this power of God. 
So the kingdom of God exists, and that's where the disciples live. That's where disciples interact with the God they're following. But there's something about this kingdom that we don't seem to understand and we don't recognize, or we fail to begin to even live in it. And I think part of that is, I, I was reminded of the parable of the pearl of great price. And you know that parable, it's a well-known parable. And Jesus tells us that there's a treasure that's hidden in a field. It's hidden in a field. And he said, if you find it, if you find it, the one who finds it will sell everything to gain possession of it. So there's something about this kingdom that God is telling, Jesus was telling us that he came to establish on the earth, that it's hidden from us. It's not within our sight. We can't see it. We can't feel it. But he says to us, we have to seek it. We have to search for it. We have to find it. And he tells us this in Matthew's gospel in chapter 5. He says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Seek first this kingdom. And he says, all things will be added to you. So there's this something about this kingdom that Jesus came to establish that we need to search for. We need to make an effort to find it. And our problem with this effort to find it, I think in a lot of ways we're blinded by the, by the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world has got us blinded and it has also got us deceived into what is good and what is holy and how we should be living our lives. Over the 22 years that I've been in ministry, I've begun to understand and I, and I get this from talking with people, listening to people, listening to holy people, listening to broken people but also get some of this by looking at surveys. And it seems there's two predominant views of God in the world today. There's a view of God that has God who created the world sitting on the throne. And he's sitting up there looking down at us. He's a distant God. He's an angry God. He's a punishing God. He doesn't seem to hear us when we cry out in his need. This is the God that people say, where is God when you need him? 9-11, we heard a lot of that. Where was God when we needed him? In all the disasters of the world, this is a common phrase, where is God in all of this? So we have this image of this God who doesn't seem to care, but he's certainly willing to punish us if we stumble and fall. The rules and the regulation and the laws must be strictly followed or else we are condemned. That is one vision of God. There's another vision of God that is much gentler, much kinder, is a much more loving God. It's a God that we interact with. He will listen to us, but oftentimes he just listens but without responding. This God, I call it his, the, the God of the Gandalf. It's like Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings. You like to be around Gandalf. He's fun to be around. He lights the fireworks. He does beautiful things. He makes us feel good. We laugh. We feel good in his kingdom. But you don't want to cross the power and the might of this God. Like Gandalf, he had tremendous power and ability and he struck when he was angry and when he needed to fight back. So we have these two images of God and neither one of those images are correct for us. Again, because we haven't experienced God, then we tend to be living with this image of God that we've gained by living in the world. In order to be able to grasp who God is, and what he wants to do in our lives, we need to begin to have an encounter with God. A real encounter like Peter did. Now you know Peter, and you're going to hear it this Sunday. 
you have the John the Baptist pointing to the Lamb of God, and it says two of Jesus, two disciples were with him. And later it names one of the two disciples as Andrew, Peter's brother. And they follow Jesus and they want to know where he is staying. And he says, come and see, come and see. And there's the invitation of God to you and I to come and to see and to experience. It's the road to Amos, walk with God, to walk with him when we don't fully understand, we don't see him as he is, but then suddenly our eyes will be open and we will understand. But Peter, Andrew went to Peter and he said, we have found the Messiah. We found him, come and see. So Andrew brings his brother Peter to Jesus and it says, the scriptures say he stayed with him all that day, all that afternoon. So Peter had an encounter with Jesus long before the incident on the Sea of Galilee. So we have this Peter who spent some time with Jesus and we don't know anything about what his thoughts were and I'm not going to speculate. But the next time we see Peter confronting Jesus is when Jesus said, cast your nets and go into the deep and cast your nets and they had fished all night. And they said, this is useless, but they comply. And of course, we know what happened. And what were Peter's words? Depart from me, God, for I am a sinner. Depart from me, for I am a sinner. And that is the image we have of ourselves oftentimes. We are distant from God. He is not distant from us. We are distant from Him because we know that we are not worthy. We know we have done nothing to deserve what God has offered us. And because we have this reaction to our God, and because we have this poor image of who God is, we don't really understand salvation. We don't understand what Jesus was saying when he said the kingdom of God is at hand, and we don't understand what his death and resurrection meant for us. We easily say he died for the forgiveness of sins. We easily say that he paid the penalty for our sin. But the question is, do we really believe it? Do we act on it? And I'll tell you, my experience is that we don't. Because we don't really believe it could be that simple for us. We don't trust what God is saying to us when he said your sins are forgiven. So we hedge our bets. We want to make sure that we do the right thing, that we follow the laws. And it puts a heavy burden on us to live holy lives. And the way we live these holy lives is we... We make sure that we are following the law as best we can. And when we fail, we go to reconciliation and get right with God again. And we hope that maybe with the time of our death that the right has outdone the wrong. And we do religious, holy, pious things, corporal works and spiritual works of mercy to make sure that we are appeasing our God, pleasing our God. The world has blinded us to the reality of who God is. And we have been programmed by the world and society to respond this way. We didn't get here by happenstance. If you think about it, when we were infants and when you raised your own children, we teach them right from wrong. From the moment they are toddlers and start getting into things, we say, no, don't touch that. Don't do that. And oftentimes we do it to keep them safe, 
to protect them from touching an electrical outlet or something hot or falling downstairs. We do things to keep them safe, but we put rules in place and we tell them no. And when they do good, we praise them. We reward them. And they learn what is right and they learn what is wrong, as we did as children. And if you were like me, you always seemed to do the wrong. You know, this was me. I'm telling you, I was one of eight children. Growing up in a poor family in southwest Louisiana, I was the third of eight. And I was the one who was always first in line for the spankings, for the discipline. When anything went wrong in my town, and I used to think it was a very big town until I took Ann back there on our 50th anniversary and found out my, my town I grew up in was six blocks by six blocks. <laughs> and it was my world, and it was a big world. And anything went wrong in that town, if anything broke or a window got broken during the night, they came knocking on my door. Is your son home? Was your son out last night? That was me, the one who always did the wrong. And then we, you know, we, we take our children and we, they grow up a little bit and we put them in preschool or kindergarten. Or when I was there, they didn't have those things. So you went into first grade and guess what happens? The rules get even more defined. You have to do certain things in school to comply. You have to follow their rules and their regulations. And if you do it right, you get a gold star or a smiley face and you bring that home and your parents praise you. Or you bring a report card home that is not as good and your parents punish you as they did me. Right and wrong. And we learn that from infancy. And as we grow up and we go into high school, it gets even more. We become valedictorians, honor students. We get reward, extra credit by taking AP classes. We get college credits. We get all these different ways of being rewarded. And that's what we're taught, isn't it? That you get paid for what you put into it. That hard work does pay off. That you pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. These are the values we learn growing up in society. That we learn that there is a reward for doing right and there's a punishment for doing wrong. And we see it in a society with laws and, and you know, going to court and all the other things involved. And we pull that into our church too. We respond to the same way because we have rules and regulations. We have the laws of God and we have the laws of the church. And we're told about those laws. And we're told if you break the rule, you have to pay penance. You know, in the old days, you go back in the Old Testament, the way they atoned for sin is they slaughtered calves and bulls, turtle doves and pigeons and wave offerings. That's how they atoned for sin. In our society today, we atone for sin by doing corporal and spiritual works of mercy, by doing penance. So we have this same mentality that has been given to us that says we have to earn heaven. And Jesus comes along and says the kingdom of God is at hand. And because of our mindset, we have a faith that depends on our ability to be good has a faith that depends on our ability to follow God's will and understand God's will. And we know how that works. We fail. We fail over and over and over again. And it condemns us and we shy away from God because of that. 
we pull away from the God. But God intended us from the beginning of creation to live in his presence. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he's telling us what God has always desired for us. From the beginning of creation, and to understand this, you have to go back to the beginning of creation. You have to go back to when God made man and woman in his image, reflecting the glory of God. So we have been made in his image and we have intimacy with God. I don't know if you realize this. I've said it before in many other different settings. But Adam and Eve were created sinless. They were without sin when they were created. They were pure. They were holy. They were intimate with God. And you see that in the scriptures. If you read the scriptures, you will see the scripture says that God walked and talked with Adam and Eve daily in the garden. They had this daily walk and talk where they conversed. You walk with friends sometimes. You walk with spouses. What do you talk about? You talk about intimate things. But you see that intimacy even further when it goes into Scripture. Picture this. Adam and Eve and God sitting on a hillside. And the Scripture says to us that God brought all the cattle and all the beasts of the field and all the birds to Adam and Eve to be named. To be named. You know how many animal mammals there are in the world? Do you realize how many there are? Can you imagine them sitting on a hillside in this parade of animals day after day after day after day coming past and we're going to name them? Can you imagine the laughter they had with God? What do you name this one, Adam? Oh, that's an aardvark. A what? <laughs> Where did you come up with that, Adam? I don't know. It just looks like an aardvark. It's a platypus. What made you think of this? But all the birds, too. You know how many different species of birds there are? And I could, out of my mind, says it didn't stop there. He had to name all the insects. He had to name all the fish. He had to name all the crustaceans. I don't know. I've got to go back to my high school biology. But you know, all these different species of, of creatures on the earth. How about all the trees and all the flowers and all the shrubs and all the grasses? Everything was named by Adam and Eve sitting with God, talking and laughing about him. It's a chrysanthemum, God. Well, how do you spell that, Adam? I have no idea, but it's going to show up on spelling bees, I bet you. I mean, this is, this is the intimacy they shared. This is the way they interacted with God. Walking and talking with God. And then God gave them the earth and he said, subdue it and make it multiply. Now recognize that we're talking about a place that was perfect. There was no winter, summer, fall, spring. It was one climate constantly. It was perfect. There was no disease. There was no sickness. There was no war. There was no famine. It was perfect. And we were created never to die, to be in God's presence. And yet we know how we lost that. And we lost it because of the temptation of Adam and Eve. And what was the temptation? The tempter comes to them and said, Did God really tell you not to eat of all the trees in the garden? And we know that's a lie. Adam knew it was a lie. And he said, No, God didn't say we're not to eat of all the trees, just the one tree. The one tree. Now imagine how hard this is. Adam and Eve had one commandment. One. The Israelites had 630 they had to follow. And I don't know how many we've got to follow. 
But they had one. And the tempter planted a seed of doubt in Adam and Eve's mind at that moment. Why did God tell us not to eat of the one? And the serpent answers the question for them. It doesn't say it in Scripture that they asked this question, but you know it was in their mind. Why did God say not to eat from the tree of knowledge? And he says, because your eyes will be open and you will be like God's. They were tempted to believe that God held something back from them. They were tempted to believe that God was withholding something good from them. And they, we know what happened. They ate of the tree. And this has been the temptation ever since. Actually, if you want to read this, it's an interesting read, and I discovered this. It is a big book, and everything you want to know about Catholicism is in the book. Any questions you may have, you go to the Catechism, it will answer it for you. But in the Catholic Catechism, under the section on sin, go to article, actually it's the prologue to 397. And in 397 it says this, Because of the sin of Adam, doubt was planted in man's heart. Now this is the church telling us this, that doubt was planted in our hearts. We doubt God. Did he really say that if we believe we will have eternal life? Did he really say that our sins are forgiven? Did he really say that? And that was the temptation. And you know what happened as soon as they, they ate of the apple. You know what? Their eyes were opened. And it says they realized they were naked. So they covered themselves. And we look at ourselves and we see our own sin that we try to hide from ourselves and the world and those around us. And we cover ourselves. We've been covering ourselves since the days of Adam and Eve to hide who we are and what we've done from other people. They hid from God. But God seeks them out. He seeks them out. They were hiding in the paradise. We hide behind all the things we do to make ourselves feel good and look good. To make the world think that we are holy. That we are not sinners and yet we are sinners. Intimacy was lost at that moment. But God began a plan. And this is where all this comes into fruition. God's plan for us never changed. God wanted intimacy with you. He wanted intimacy with me. He wanted an intimacy that is unique and close and personal. And he wanted that, and that is God's desire. And he set a plan in motion to restore what was lost by the sin of Adam and Eve. And it took millenniums to get to that point. But God had a plan, and God was going to be faithful to his plan. As soon as Adam and Eve was expelled from paradise, God began this plan. And he lays out this plan for us in the prophets. So if you begin to read Scripture and you start with Genesis and read of Genesis, read about the fall, and you read about Noah, and you read about Abraham, all these wonderful stories, when the prophets begin to come out, he begins to reveal his plan. And what his plan is is really pretty simple. And he sets it up in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the sacrifice of blood for the atonement of sin. 
And there's one sacrifice that comes out loud and clear, and I think it's found in Leviticus 16. I might be wrong on the chapter. But it talks about the, the gathering of all the Israelites, all the community on one day, and a live, unblemished goat is let out. It's brought before Aaron, where Aaron lays his hands on the head of the goat. All this is in this book of Leviticus. He lays his hands on the head of the goat, and puts upon the head of the goat all the sins of all the Israelites. Get the picture now. One goat, all the sins, all the Israelites, all time. And the goat is led into the wilderness, and he takes, the scripture says, he tarries away the sins of all the people. There's God's plan, simply put, laid out for us by all these sacrifices of blood, but it's the sacrifice of the one true lamb that is going to set us all free. And he lays all this out in the prophets. And he also lays out other promises that he's going to fulfill for us. And he begins to tell us these things in the prophets. Now I could go through every prophet and show you what God is going to do for us and who God is. But I'd like to talk about just a couple of places in Scripture to make this as simple as I can for you. And I'm going to go not to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. I'm not going to go to Noah. I'm going to go all the way to Moses. And you know Moses' story. He was reluctant. He set the people free. They went through the Red Sea. They went through all the hardships. And then they reached Mount Sinai. And the theologians tell us they tried to pinpoint the amount of time from the Exodus to Mount Sinai and the amount of time from Mount Sinai to the promised land. And they couldn't pinpoint it because the way Scripture is written, they couldn't give you a definite framework of time. But they all agree it was a short period of time, less than a year, that all of this happened. And we tend to think of them wandering for 40 years, which is true, but it was after they reached the promised land and Moses refused to enter the promised land. And because he refused to enter the promised land and he had scouts in the promised land for 40 days, God said, you will spend one year in exile for every day you spent reconnoitering the land that I promise you. 40 days spent 40 years and Moses never got to enter the promised land. So here you have God, this man Moses who he's chosen. They reach Mount Sinai with the people this mountain is covered with a cloud, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's all this rumbling, and Moses goes up the mountain to encounter God. Now you've got to remember in those days, if you saw God face to face, they believed you would die. If you said God's name, they believed you would die. But Moses goes up the mountain to encounter this God that no one can talk to and no one could see. And he encounters God and he gets the, the covenant with God. He gets the tablet of stones with the Ten Commandments. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And he gave us the Ten Commandments, he said, so that we might have life, that we might live. And you know, there was a wonderful things happening on a mountain, and Moses was transformed so much that he glowed and he had put a veil over his face. He was changed so drastically. But after all that happens, Moses says this to God. He said, let me see your glory. 
How bold of Moses to ask to see God when they believe that if you saw God, you would die. And yet he has the audacity to say, let me see your glory. Let me see it. And God says, you will see my glory, but you will not see my face. And he tells him the next day there's a rock and he's going to put him in the cleft of the rock. He's going to put his hand over Moses' face and he's going to pass by. So God passes by on this day. He said, go there. And he says this to Moses. He identifies himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, sin, and transgression. There's the God that we doubt and that we fear. The God who says, if you encounter me, you're going to discover mercy. You're going to discover love. You're going to discover faithfulness. You're going to discover generosity. You're going to discover forgiveness of all things, sins, transgression, everything you could do against me, you're going to experience. That's the God that desires intimacy with you and with me. There's the God we seek to encounter. But then he goes out, and we know how all this transpired with Moses and the people. And he comes to us through the prophet of Jeremiah. And I could read you any prophet, and I could show you those attributes of God that he showed, that he told Moses, or who he was. I could show it to you in every prophet. I could show you in every prophet where he says he forgives sin. But I want you to pay attention just to prophecies of God. These are promises of God. I don't know if you know this, but there's 250 promises of God in the Scriptures. 250. And I believe that if we could just latch on to one of those promises and begin to believe them and act on them, it will change our lives. It will change how we approach God. It will change our image of God. And we will understand this kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish. But God comes to us in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived in a very desolate time in the history of Israel. They were in exile. They were defeated people. They were wondering, where is God? And he comes to them and he says this through Jeremiah. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. This is in Jeremiah chapter 33. And if you go to verse 31, you can see all this that I'm going to read to you. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. It will not be like the old one. The old one he made with Moses when he put his law on tablets of stone. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will no longer teach each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me from the least to the greatest, and I will forgive their sin and remember their guilt no more. God says three things to us in this prophecy of Jeremiah. After he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, it's not going to be like the one I made with Moses. 
So instead of having your my law on tablets of stone, which you failed to follow, you could not follow. I'm going to write my law on your heart. And you're going to be able to follow my law because it's going to be written on your hearts. Something within in you is going to make you follow my law. Not by your willpower, as required under the old covenant. Not by your own strength, your own desire, your own faithfulness. It's going to spring from within you. I'm going to write my law on your heart. And everyone is going to know me. You will not have to teach people how to know me. Everyone is going to know me. So he's going to write his law on our hearts, and we're going to know him. To understand what he means when he says, you will know me, you have to understand the meaning and the root meaning of the word know. It's a simple word. If you look it up in a dictionary, it says, it says to gain knowledge by inquiry and study. That's not what God is saying. Not to gain knowledge by inquiry and study. We're going back to the tree of knowledge if we do that. God said, no, you're going to know me. And almost every time you see that word connected with knowing God in Scripture, it's the same root word. It's a Hebrew word, yada. And what it means is, and I'm going to give, show you how it's used rather than give you a meaning. The first time it appears in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. So early in the beginning, in the paradise that God created for us, and after they were expelled from paradise, God says this, and He uses, the Scriptures uses this word, this Hebrew word, yada, and it says, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Do you grasp the meaning of that? Adam knew Eve. He had intimacy with her. And she conceived and bore her son. And God said, this is how you're going to know me. You are going to have this physical intimacy with me. We are going to become one flesh, one mind, one soul. That concept of marriage that the church teaches us. The two become one. We become sons and daughters. That's what he's saying here. It's a powerful statement by God. But it's more than a statement. It's a promise. It's a spiritual truth that never can be revoked. And then he says this remarkable thing. He said, and I'm going to forgive your sin and remember your guilt no more. What are we going to be judged on? I worry about my sins and he's telling me he's already forgotten my sins. I can see myself going to the pearly gates and he says, who are you? I'm Dave. What are you doing here? I'm here for judgment. You told me I'm going to be judged. Well, what are you going to be judged on? Well, you know, God. I don't know. I forgot. I'm a senior citizen. I've been around for a long time. You know? I mean, this is what God is saying to us. I forget. I think it puts us more stringent lifestyle on our, make us understand that God requires more of us than just following the law. And he says that to us. He says, I don't want your sacrifice and offerings. I want your hearts. I think what we're judged on, and you read this in the, in the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Psalm 139, in one of the versions, it says, In his book is written every one of my days, 
and the good deeds I have prepared in advance for you. Good deeds I prepared in advance for you. Paul echoes that in, in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Ephesians verse 10, and he says, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for the good works He has prepared in advance that we might live in them. So I think we're going to be judged. Are we living in God's will? That today, on January the 14th, 2021, God had a plan for my life and He had a plan for your life. Am I doing God's will today? This is a question I have to ask myself all the time. Am I doing God's will today? I like doing these things. Am I doing this for me or am I doing it for God? This is the examination I have to go through in my own life. And we need to do the same thing because this is what God told us. 250 years went by. And God now comes in the prophecy of Ezekiel. And he tells us how he's going to fulfill this promise he made to us through the prophet Jeremiah. You find this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your transgressions. What is this clean water that he's talking about? Remember the words of Jesus on the Feast of the Atonement, the, the, the greatest feast when he stands up and he says, out of me, out of my heart, the scriptures say, the root meaning of the word, out of me, out of my coleus, out of my heart, will flow living water. Will flow this living water. God is saying, I'm going to sprinkle this clean water over you and cleans you from all your transgressions. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put in you. I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and my decrees, and you shall live in the land that I will give you. I will put my spirit within you and give you a new heart, and cause you, motivate you, make you follow my statutes and decrees. It's not by our might, it's by the Spirit working within us that we become holy men and holy women. There's several things we need to understand about these two prophecies. And the first one is that God's plan has never changed from the minute Adam and Eve were expelled from paradise. He wants intimacy with us, and he's made everything possible for us to be intimate with him through these two promises, through these two prophets, and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We become disciples by allowing what God's plan is to begin to work in our lives, by understanding that we are forgiven, that the guilt is removed, that we do live in the kingdom of God on earth where we could feel God's presence, that we could feel the arms of the prodigal son's father embracing us. You know, the interesting thing about the prodigal son is a lot of things interesting about that, and I find new things every day. But I found it interesting that the father was always standing there waiting, watching for the son to return. He wasn't in his house. He didn't have a servant out there who said, tell me when my son comes. He was out there himself watching and waiting. And this is the God who is waiting for us 
to accept His invitation to intimacy. And He will embrace us and He will move us into this place where we feel the celebration and we begin to walk in this kingdom of God on earth. The entire concept hinges on this one sacrifice that our sins are forgiven and we don't have to earn God's favor. We cannot appease God, but we can live in God's grace. And that puts a heavy burden on us to seek His embrace. But it also puts a burden on us because Jesus said, you will do what I do to begin to do what Jesus did. You know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, we had this wonderful mantra that was going around. People had T-shirts and they had bracelets. What would Jesus do? WWJD. I think that thing, looking back, had it all wrong. That's one of those lies of the world. We're going to use Jesus as our model. We're going to, by force of will, do what Jesus did. I think the mantra really is WDDJ. What did Jesus do? What did He do? He died for our sins so we could be reconciled to God. And then God comes to us and says, we have to do what He did. And forgiveness is part of that. Many of us have broken families. We have people we haven't talked to in years. We have people we'd rather not talk to in years. We like it that way. We don't get along with them. I got brothers and sisters that haven't contacted me, and I haven't contacted them. Not the way God wants me to. But God said this to us. He said, if you forgive others their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So it seems like God has a caveat for us who call ourselves disciples. That we have to be as loving and gracious and merciful and forgiving as God is. I'm going to read you one more scripture and then we're going to end. I'm going to read this from a New Living Translation. I'm going to read it that way because... I like the way they say it. It's just direct and to the point, and you're going to recognize this passage when you hear it. It comes from Matthew 5. It says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before, you, before the altar and go first to be reconciled with your brother and then come and present your offering. Summarize that in one sentence. God says, forgiveness, you're forgiving other people comes before any religious act you may do in your life. Before you do anything religious act, he says forgiving your brother is critical to being a disciple and living in the kingdom. Paul tells us as we come into this kingdom of God, as we begin to encounter Jesus Christ, that we are transformed from glory to glory into the very image of his Son. He tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We are transformed by this work of the Spirit into the very image of Jesus Christ. That's our destiny, brothers and sisters. 
to be like Christ. So let us pray. Lord, we stand before you like the prodigal, knowing that we are guilty, and yet you embrace us. You put the cloak of righteousness on our shoulders. It is fresh with your scent. Let us hear the words that you said to him, we have to rejoice, for this child of mine is found. Let us hear the words that Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery. There's no one here to condemn you, and neither do I. And let us go out then, Lord, Father, as we feel your mercy, and tell everyone that we have a God who loves us and forgives us. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.